Welcome back, Warriors. Tansei Sego, Anibuju, Kuenin Deluisi, Pam Palmeter, and I am the host of this show, The Warrior Life. This podcast is a show about living the warrior life, a lifestyle that focuses on decolonizing our minds, bodies, and spirits while at the same time revitalizing our cultures, traditions, laws, and governing practices. And it's also about asserting, living, and defending our sovereignty all over Turtle Island. And I have to say quite crankily that while we were all enjoying seeing our friends and family again and enjoying getting back to powwows, our summer was rudely, and I might add unnecessarily, interrupted by a federal election. And you know what that means. It means that we have to bring back the one and the only Turtle Island's own political affairs correspondent, Negan Sinclair. Yeah, I know. What kind of friend am I to Negan that I would interrupt his summer to ask him to come onto the Warrior Life podcast and talk election politics with us? Well, that's how dedicated I am to our listeners, that I would take that risk and ask him to come on here. And for those of you who are new to the planet, Negan covers Indigenous issues all over Canada, U.S., Mexico, and when necessary, in other colonial countries which commit injustices against Indigenous peoples. And he has all the credentials, too. Not only was he brought up and grounded in his traditional Anishinaabe culture, but Negan is also an associate professor at the University of Manitoba in the Department of Native Studies, and he's a prolific public speaker and media commentator. I literally listen to what he has to say on all of these issues every day. Like we mentioned before, he's an award-winning author and an award-winning columnist for the Winnipeg Free Press. But in order for him to maintain the title of Turtle Island's political affairs correspondent, I think we're going to have to give him a little test first. So what do you have to say about that, Negan? Uh, I'm still in shock that you're calling me the only person. Like, I'm just imagining all the people who are now mad. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, not, not the <laughs> only, so, you're the... Wonderful, but not good when you insult them. So. <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> um, uh, so what do you think? Welcome to the show, by oh, the way. You know, bonjour, everybody. Thanks for having me as usual. Good morning from Treaty One territory over here. Of course, homeland of my people, the Cree, the uh, Oja Cree, Dakota, Lakota, and then a homeland of the Métis Nation. It's nice to see everyone. Uh, we are in the middle of a federal election, whether we want it or not. And uh, I think the fact is that we're in a, lots of different crossroads and uh, I'm glad to be here. This is, of course, my job. So this is not something that like I'm, uh, you know, itching at the to do in terms of talking about a federal election, but I'm very happy to be here and very happy to do this uh, with you. I'm so happy. In fact, I'm doing this on a Sunday morning. So there you go. Oh yeah, I know. See, just even worse. And by the way, also interrupt your weekend. Okay. Well, before we get into the election questions, I did say we were going to test you. So we're going to do a speed round of who said this to see if you really know your Canadian politics. Now, I want you to know that I have a note saying that uh, <laughs> I have an, I have I have ex- ex- exemptions from testing. So exemptions from testing. So I'll do the test, but if I fail, then I want you to know that I wasn't supposed to do it in the first place. Okay, okay. So you know, we're hoping that you get the name of the person and their political party, but you know, one or the other that would be good. Okay, are you ready? Uh, I'm, Stockwell Day. 
Okay. Oh. Was that, was that, did we not start yet? Sorry. Oh, no. no, okay. Here's the first quote. There is no relationship more important to Canada than the one with Indigenous peoples. Okay, Lucienne Bouchard in... <laughs> That's, I think that's a funny political joke. Yeah. Obviously, Justin Trudeau and the liberals. And okay. probably one of the very first things he said as prime minister, which uh, literally like the ink wasn't dry on the election. And there he was saying that from the get-go. And I remember when he said that, I turned to my sister beside me because it was at the TRC final report. And, um, and, and I turned to my sister and I said, oh my God, the Indian Act's done. And nope, the Indian Act's clear. <laughs> It was literally his mantra. He said it at every event. It was in all of the um, mandate letters for all of his ministers. Literally, they had the same thing in all of those mandate letters. So it was like his first four years. That was just over and over and over again. There's no relationship more important. Yeah. Well, I mean... I wonder what his wife has to say about that. But anyways, okay. All right, here we go. Yeah, okay. So the next one's sort of related. Who said this? Trudeau doesn't give a fuck about Indigenous rights. I did. That was me. <laughs> I said that. We're excluded. <laughs> uh, no, of course it was Romeo Saganash, and who now is a Winnipeg resident here and uh, working very hard on Leah Gazan's campaign. We see him on the streets. Uh, Romeo has become like a quasi-Manitoban right here in Treaty 1 territory. And, uh, you know, great respect for Romeo. Let's all remember that, you know, the only reason that the, the Liberals are passing the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, the implementing um, Bill C-15, is because it's basically Romeo's bill. So let's all just be aware that Romeo was the one who really should be getting credit. But of course, now that he's not in politics or he's in the NDP, the Liberals just kind of forget about that stuff. So, Right. Okay. Well, now you're two for two. You've got the names and the parties both. Okay. This one. Anxiety. Okay. <laughs> this one, we're going a little bit back in history. Who said this? We also have no history of colonialism in Canada. John A. McDonald. That was John A. McDonald who said, <laughs> I believe he believed that with every heart, ounce of his heart. It's premonition, though. We oh, won't have any person. The reincarnation of him was Stephen Harper. Yes, exactly. Oh, and what party was he from again? That was the, uh, I'm going to say three options. Uh, the Reform <laughs> slash United Conservative slash Canadian Line slash Conservative Party. So all of them, because they're all basically the same thing. Okay, that's awesome. Three for three. All right, this one is way back in history. Our objective is to continue until there is not a single Indian in Canada. See, that's a tricky one, actually, because... Uh, to, okay, so say it again. Say it. Our objective is to continue until there is not a single Indian in Canada. And so help me if you're using your phone. By the way, you can't use your phone. <laughs> and there's no phone a friend. The single Indian in Canada, I mean, obviously, Sir John A. is the one that kind of, the reason why I'm struggling is I'm like, is that a Duncan Campbell Scott thing? Like, I, I one or two dudes. Yeah, I'm going to say Sir John A., of course, because I think ah. that's more likely. Am I wrong? Ah. Duncan Campbell Scott. See, the, see, if it's Duncan Campbell Scott, you have to realize that, like, that. that's, I mean, you have to dig in the archives for that one. Because, hmm. you know, like, he doesn't get to be the front person. He's the back no. person. And working hard to make sure that we all have terrible lives. So I take it back. 
Um, I say Bunker Campbell Scott. Okay, good. And I mean, Sir John A said iterations of the same thing in many different ways. So it's kind of, but I always get those two mixed up. And for the record, if I say both their names, then they both count. So there you go. That's it's like the postmodern answering. Oh, okay. All right. Okay. Here's the next one. And this one is also going back in time, but not that far. First Nation, when so he was referencing First Nations treaty chiefs, and he said, These people are threats to national security. Oh, God. But you can also pick the party, too, and you, you're good on if you just get the party. Like, what party would say we're threats to national security? I'm going to say Jason Kenney. Uh, but, I mean, the critical infrastructure bill. Uh, oh. or, but, but I mean, yeah. uh, you could say that's Robert Borisov. Like you, like this is true. Okay, you know what? There should be like multiple answers for this because I didn't give you the whole contextual quote of like it was three lines. Oh, I feel like I'm failing you and you're trying to give me excuses to give me half points. No, 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 no. So it was um, former Minister of Aboriginal Affairs, Bernard Valcour. Oh, and he was testing. Yeah. Remember when the... Um, it said, who had crashed on a motorcycle and then therefore later said... The national that were threats to national security, I'd be yeah. like Valcor for sure. Yeah, exactly. Of course, Valcor, and you know, then came Bill C fifty one to try to surveil us who, all legally. Who was the only? Here's who was the only person when they they called for the national inquiry into murder, missing Indigenous women and girls to not stand up. Oh my it, gosh! Yes, he was in the front row. How embarrassing! Uh, okay, literally, and Tom Mulcair was famously beside him and. And he was like, oh, my, like, what is wrong with you? <laughs> that was so iconic. What an ass. Mm. Pardon my language. Okay. So that one was a tricky one. But and I think I, know that I, should one. Get, I should get half points for Jason Kenny. Okay, come on. Because he had said those things too. Yeah, Jason Kenny for sure. And in fact. He just yeah. passed a law for this exact sentiment, who yeah. then has been copied by Brian Pallister and been copied by now Aaron O'Toole in the Conservative yeah. Party platform. It's the exact same law. Yeah, exactly. Basically, you could have just said Conservatives General and it would have captured all those dudes. So we're good. Okay, here's the last one. And it might be tricky because I don't know if you follow this dude. He's a bit out there. So that's kind of a hint, like bit a bit out there. He Brad said, Wall. "Brad Wall, Brad Wall's just okay." Um, Trudeau's extreme multiculturalism and cult of diversity will divide us into little tribes. I feel like that's a that sounds like a Maxim Bernier. Yes. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And do you know his party? Uh, the People's Party or something like yes, that. Yes, exactly. The oh. CPC, the Canada People's Party, I think, isn't it? People's we might Party. We might call it the Anti-Vaccination Party now. <laughs> the Anti-Vaxxers, yeah, I know, exactly. And, and most importantly, arrested in southern Manitoba. Like, you got to work hard to be a white guy saying hateful things and still be arrested in southern Manitoba. Oh, my God. <laughs> in a protest of, like, three people. I mean... Right. Like there's a lot of racism in Southern Manitoba. If you're white, you're pretty privileged down there. You're the cops are not looking out looking for you. You got to do something pretty rough. And then on top of that, he's led an anti-vaccination, which is the center of anti-vaccination in Manitoba. And he was still arrested. That's that's pretty impressive. 
It's it's was, phenomenal. He was in town the other day facing his court charges. So there. Oh my gosh! It's just it. I don't know. It feels so wrongly satisfying. Okay, so let's get to the really hard questions. The first one is. Why on earth are we having my typical my typical grade was in school was like a C plus a B so I feel like I got a C plus at least in that so oh uh, uh, you know I'm giving you an A on that one oh that's you really only missed part of one I don't need pity grades but okay thank you <laughs> I'm a good prof come on okay. you get an A <clears throat> okay why are we having this election hello it's summertime uh, okay, well, it's pretty basic, and this is a referendum on Trudeau's government. And uh, the Trudeau basically sees the writing on the wall, and the writing on the wall is that there's a potential majority in play because he can make inroads in two major places. The first is Quebec, because there's a fundamental loss in block support um, because of a number of reasons. But I think for the most part, people didn't like how the Quebec government handled the pandemic and they were under lockdown for such a long period of time. And so there's a potential there for uh, Trudeau to break into Quebec and to have an opportunity there. That alone might spark a federal election because the Liberals haven't performed at a, you know very well there. And, and certainly they're within majority reach, but they need to have Quebec to do that. The second is this uh, very weakened Conservative Party, which if you were to ask an everyday Canadian and say, who is the opposition leader? Most people would say Jason Kenney or the Canadian premiers uh, instead of Aaron O'Toole. And so there's an opportunity there to see a, a weakened conservative party and particularly weakened in Alberta, Saskatchewan and Manitoba. There's a reason why, for example, that the two major announcements in this election campaign from the Liberals, the very first one, which was on the day before the writ was dropped, or the Friday before, uh, which was the childcare announcement in Saskatchewan. That was a breakthrough for, for the Liberals. And then second is that the uh, issues around Indigenous uh, camp, the, the Indigenous issues in relation to the campaign, uh, Trudeau's been, you know, wants to put that at the forefront and was here as recently as Friday, last Friday. Uh, and so he sees possibilities in the prairies, which the Liberals haven't seen for quite a while. And that's why we're having an election, because the Liberals want a majority and they want to be able to express and, and push their agenda forward without the assistance of the NDP. But the fact is that in terms of Indigenous peoples, which are the ones that we're most interested in often writing or thinking, of course, that there are peoples, this is the probably the most successful Canadian legislature for Indigenous peoples in history. Good, bad, great, ugly. Whether, whether you would like the bills that have been passed for Indigenous languages, child welfare, even the United Nations Declaration C-15 we talked about earlier, that's because of the role of the NDP in, in able to push the Liberals towards an agenda that isn't just resource-based, but is based in uh, looking towards, you know, trying to deal with some of the major issues that are really uh, breaking down the relationship, which is the issue of the non-recognition of Indigenous rights, uh, Indigenous land claims, adequate consultation. And the fact is that we can't just continue to treat Indigenous peoples like mines to ex be exploited and be taken things from. And so the Liberals uh, have shown in the past that they're interested in that. They have also shown that they that they have failed to deliver on their major promise, which is around boil water advisories. So I don't think the Liberals are to be trusted. And the current situation is probably more favorable to Indigenous peoples than it would be for Liberals to have a majority. 
Okay, well, that explains a lot because here we are, you know, still in this pandemic, you know, this fourth wave's coming, summer, I mean, hello, summer, and, uh, you know, we're in an election, which... It is, it is the positive work that the Liberals have done during the pandemic, which is generally favorable by Canadians. Yeah. Also, by the way, I would say favorable for most Indigenous nations yeah. who saw that the Liberals prioritized and rightfully prioritized. Anybody who had any sense in their head should prioritize First Nations um, in terms yeah. of the vaccine response, because we know that the vaccine will spread quicker, will damage more, will kill more on First Nations than it will be in Winnipeg or Calgary or Toronto. And so, <clears throat> so for good, bad, great, ugly, Canadians feel generally favorable of Trudeau's reaction to the pandemic. And that's really what's driving this federal election because the upswing in support, if you look at all of the things the Liberals have really done over the past three years, most of them have been major faux pas. There's SNC and Lavalin, there's the WE campaign, there's all the issues around uh, the you know various scandals involving sexual harassment within the military. The Liberals have bungled so many different events. They should be failing in support, but they're getting support because of the pandemic. Right. And and we know, like, if you just look at it the other way, let's pretend that the Harper government was still in power or it was an Aaron O'Toole government. We wouldn't have seen half the amount of pandemic supports for Canadians in general or Indigenous peoples. And I think that would have made a significant crisis even worse had it been under this, like, you know, no more bailouts, no more subsidies, uh, work only programs kind of mantra of the conservatives. You lost me when you said Aaron O'Toole government. I just, <laughs> my, <laughs> brain sorry, exploded, <laughs> my brain exploded, started right here because I went like that would never what? happen. No, First no. Off, Aaron O'Toole is uh, the most con so most progressive conservative in history. I mean, the guy supports LGBTQ rights. He supports uh, issues around multiculturalism and inclusion. Like, like, it's just a weird state that the conservatives are in, in that they're trying to move towards the center, but the very foundation of the party is anti-LGBTQ rights, anti-immigration, anti-Indigenous people. Like, the fact is that you've got this weird situation where the leader of the conservative party doesn't really represent who conservatives, for the most part, are certainly a loud vocal major or large vocal amount of conservatives. I don't want to say majority because it really isn't a majority. I think mm -hmm. most conservatives tend to be kind of bouncing between the liberals and the conservatives, and and so meaning a slightly socially aware. Um, and so, so like certainly, you know, the idea of of, of Aaron O'Toole being a prime minister is uh, frankly impossible. In the current circumstance, his own party won't support him, never mind uh, people in the middle. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so well, that's a good segue into um, what the polls are saying about these parties. Like, who's who's even registering as having some kind of national support? And and you know, do you think if it's a any kind of real contest between the Liberals and the Conservatives? No. The only question of this campaign is: Will the Liberals get into Quebec? Will the NDP moving across the prairies uh, be able to withstand a, a liberal majority? Those are the only two questions of this campaign. And um, the conservatives, will they hold on to major strongholds, which is Alberta? Will they hold on to Saskatchewan? Will they maintain their support in rural Ontario? Like that's really the only questions of this campaign, because the fact is that 
I think this is the last we're going to see of Aaron O'Toole unless there's some major turnaround. I mean, he performed pretty good the first week. So, so maybe there's, you know, like just like the T-shirt on the front of the uh, the conservative campaign thing, uh, we, we all went, oh, Aaron O'Toole looks pretty good in a T-shirt. Uh, <laughs> like we may be surprised by Aaron O'Toole. And I think the first week is somewhat surprising. He, he succeeded in this. The number one thing that, that the conservatives want is for Canadians to talk about conservatives. And they did. They successfully put out their platform. Everybody went, what the hell is this thing? And good, bad. Some people said it's good. Some people said it's bad. Uh, I think it's generally very bad for Indigenous peoples uh, for the most part, even though it is the most interested and engaged Canadian conservative platform in history when it comes to Indigenous peoples and says things like we should recognize Indigenous rights, but then like at the same time says, yeah, but we should arrest them when they go and stand yes, Exactly, no, exactly. Doesn't make any sense at all. I wrote about yeah. that on, on my column on Saturday. Yeah. But, but like um, the, uh, the, the fact is that, you know, this is a, re- this is an election really about the liberals and mm-hmm. uh, will Canadians give the liberals a majority in uh, Quebec? Will they push them over the edge in Quebec? Um, and really, Jagmeet Singh's performance, the fact that he's opened up his campaign trail in Alberta, like, what's that about? That just shows you that the failing support for Jason Kenney and the rise of Rachel Notley um, has resulted in Jagmeet Singh walking around Calgary in the first week of the campaign. Like, like who would have predicted that? Yeah. Um, that just tells you that, but if you look at the polls, there's been a 5% drop in Alberta for the Conservatives and a 5% increase for the federal NDP. Jagmeet Singh is the most popular federal leader in Alberta by far. Wow. Um, and so the fact is that will the uh, Liberals be able to hold off the NDP in their, their support? Uh, that's the real question. Those are the two major questions. And I guess the third question is, is will Aaron O'Toole be able to hold on to the Conservative strongholds long enough to maintain his role as leader? I'm thinking not so much from what I'm seeing. Okay, well, there's a question that I think about five Canadians would be really interested in hearing your response to. But first, I oh, need to show you this little this little video. There's about five people who are very concerned about this. <laughs> So for those of you who are listening on podcasts and not seeing on video, that was one of my TikToks where the infamous TikToker Native Dad is laughing in the background and there's pictures of basically Maxime Bernier, leader of the People's Party of Canada, finding out essentially that he won't be able to participate in the federal leaders debate. And he is calling this essentially the work of the uh, political cartel. So w- what are your thoughts on poor Maxine being booted out of the federal leaders debate? Uh, I've already, just from this podcast alone, thought more about Maxime Bernier than <laughs> I've ever thought before. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because I just don't think about him. And, yeah. and you know, the uh, one thing I was interested in that interesting in that little TikTok video you showed, uh, it did show him being arrested in Southern Manitoba. So right. That's probably the most press that he's gotten in the past two years. And it's because uh, during the pandemic, when all of us were in lockdown here in Manitoba, he showed up to do a rally and then the police immediately arrested him for inciting a large group function. And uh, he was arrested for that and he still is facing charges in Southern Manitoba. Like the fact is Maxime Bernier has never had a party. 
It's been an illusion from the beginning. And the idea that he was able to sign up people to sign, like you can get, I can get people to sign up for, if I said free ice cream cones, I could probably get <laughs> to, to sign up for something in an hour. Like that's Max M. Bernier. If I said, okay, everybody, you can run for office. You're going to get 500 people to, to sign up for that. That doesn't mean they're candidates. That doesn't mean they're credible candidates. In fact, the fact that I remember we had this discussion in the media newsroom at the uh, Free Press, and we said, oh, well, we found out that one of the Canadian People's Party candidates has said racist things. Should we run a story on it? And the, and the question was, is like, what would be the point of it? Because we know that they're never going to be elected. We know that they are not a credible political party candidate. We know that they've never been vetted. This has never been a legitimate party. All this proves to you is that there is a measure of racism, of xenophobia, of uh, stupidity and ignorance in this country. And it is in the upper echelons of political power that Canadians still have those positions and those can still get you. You can still be a privileged white man and get to the most highest offices of the land, almost become the leader of one of Canada's political parties, to, like by a hair, like the guy almost got, you know, uh, Andrew Scheer, almost yeah. Andrew Scheer. but it tells you that, that you can be to the highest offices in this land and still be a racist, still be xenophobic, still be so profoundly incorrect and ignorant on virtually every major issue. You could never read anything and still get to the echelons of power in this country. That is probably the only thing that we need to say about Maxim Bernier. <laughs> yeah, and bye-bye. Bye-bye now. Well, I mean, the question is, is like, why are we talking about somebody who is, like, why does he get a position of in, yeah. in supposed civil debate in a federal election? Well, it's because there is a, well, there's two things there. One is the movement of Canadians to try to be inclusive, meaning to support racism as a legitimate form of dialogue, which it isn't. No. And so we should probably think about our values as a, as a society when we say, okay, racism is not a civil form of dialogue. And the second is, is that you can do uh, almost anything, spout hate, and still get 3% of support of the country, that shouldn't get you just because you can promote hate means that you shouldn't get a, a position in a major form of dialogue. And frankly, it's embarrassing that the media would humor that. Yeah, exactly. I have, um, I've written this article for The Breach. It's going to come out either sometime today or tomorrow. So it'll already be out by the time this podcast is out probably where I actually did the painful job of looking through Maxime Bernier's platform and comparing it directly line by line with the conservative platform. And in fact, they're, they're almost identical on all the things they care about, like uh, making sure pipelines go through, stopping protesters, protecting the right of free speech so that there can't be any hate crime legislation, reducing immigration, stopping bogus asylum claims and refugees. So there's a real, although he's his own, whatever that weird party is, he is a product of the conservative government. And there's many people in the conservatives party, sorry, uh, that actually share those views. They're just less in your face protesting about it. Uh, uh, I, I, I went to South Africa in 
94. Well, 1983 is actually when I was there, but 1993, 94. So I got to watch the Mandela election when I was 17. And it was probably the most remarkable experience of democracy that I ever had anyways, because what you saw is you saw people, Africans, literally from South Africa, who had experienced apartheid, and many of them had never voted before. So uh, many people had couldn't, couldn't read because the there was no schools for people you know who were Africans in South Africa. Of course, that's what racism does, right? Um, anyways, so um, there was this really interesting trend that happened in the election. So they had 23 political parties running for office, including Nelson Mandela, of course, and everybody knew Nelson Mandela was going to win. Um, and the second place party was a party called the Inkata Freedom Party, which was the, the Zulus, the other tribal community other than the Gozas, which is what uh, Mandela is. Uh, that, that's his tribe. Anyways, so uh, because people couldn't read and because people were so profoundly um, illiterate, they couldn't, uh, they, they had to go by basically the pictures of how, what the candidates look like. And because it was what we call a proportional ballot, you've only voted for the party. You didn't vote for candidates. They Once the party got in, then they got to pick who the candidates were across the country. It's a different form of democracy. But anyways, so so what the, what the opposition parties did, there's 23 political parties. And what they did was they knew that Mandela was going was gonna to win. So what they lots of people did is they 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 registered names like the African uh, Men's Council, the AMC, and they would find the guy that most likely looked like Nelson Mandela, oh. and they put him on the ballot. So that oh. people, when they got to the ballot and they got this ballot and they can't read, they would go like, okay, what does it look like? I'm looking for something that looks like ANC, and I'm looking for something that was uh, that looked like Nelson Mandela, and I just put my X beside that. And those parties, those parties who were basically a bunch of yahoos who were basically trying their best to get some kind of form of role in the government because you only had to get 3% of the national vote to then put candidates into the national government. And they did it. They got... They wow. got a percentage of support that they were able to put people in the government, very minor, ineffectual, rather irrelevant people. But that shows you that in any democracy, there is a level of absolutely illegitimate, irrelevant and pointless views that will never enter into power that are almost why would you support such hate or such confusion or frank ignorance Mm -hmm. And that reminds me when you talk about Maxim Bernier of my experience in South Africa. <laughs> oh, my goodness. OK, well, let's get to what we know. We know right now the conservatives, their platform is online. The NDP's platform is online. Uh, we don't have a platform for the liberals unless uh, I didn't check this morning, but there wasn't yesterday. They said they were going to wait closer to potentially the debates. Um, any idea why the Liberals wouldn't have their platform up right now like the rest of them? Because they don't need to. They, uh, they've got a track record that they can debate on. And uh, frankly, the Liberals, like, why would they? Why would they put something out that people can attack? Uh, the job of the Liberals is to keep the ship steady and to keep it moving. Run on your record. Try to avoid the major 
minefields, which are SNC Lavalin. Uh, by the way, you know, Jody Wilson Raybolt isn't running, so they don't have to worry about that issue as much anymore. Don't ride on the issues around the Wheat campaign. Notice that, that Pierre Polyev and other conservatives are trying to bring up the issues of the Wheat campaign. And then, of course, uh, most recently, the the issues around the harassments in the military and, and other things that the Liberals have slipped up upon and, and made major mistakes upon. Um, just try to avoid those issues the best, the best that you can. Because as soon as you put out a party platform, then you have a track record to compare it to. And so what will happen is, is that you say, okay, well, uh, we're going to fix boil water advisories, right? Let's say that that's on, on First Nations. Well, the first question would be is, didn't you promise that already? And like, why didn't you deliver on the first five years in office? So as soon as you put out a party platform, you say that you things, you basically, it's a statement of things to say that you haven't done. So, of course, you don't put out a power party platform. It shouldn't be surprising. And what you should be, um, you know, they're probably going to be releasing it only when they have to, which is when Trudeau is going to face it in a debate. So probably the day before, something to give the Conservatives the most minimal time possible to read it and to pick a pick apart and so on. And for Canadians to be aware of it as well. So it'll be released uh, much later. Frankly, if at all, because in the, like it, it may just be parsed out over a number of other documents. That if I were in the liberal strategy room, I would say your best your best job is for Canadians to only think about you who already support you and to give people some reasons to support you in certain strategic areas of the country, like the child care plan. Uh, like the issues around the pandemic response, keep talking about the economic recovery because that will get you into Alberta. I think that would be generally, if I was in the liberal strategy room, that's what I would be saying. Um, unfortunately, Indigenous peoples lose on that issue because the the liberals have been so porous on it. They have they have uh, really you know poverty has increased as an example. The only thing the liberals have done to solve poverty is they've moved the market basket measure, which is the way that we assess poverty, which is basically the price of a basket of goods. What they've done is they've said, oh well, it's less than we thought, so therefore 150,000 people overnight were classified and defined as being out of poverty, where nothing had been invested. They just defined it differently. And so that's what the liberals have done with poverty. And what, and guess who's the ones in poverty? That's us. That's our people. And so, you know, the, the fact is that uh, the liberals have really failed on issues involving Indigenous peoples. For the most part, they have given little things like the Indigenous Languages Act. By the way, that act will never save any Indigenous languages. It's mostly like an after-school program. It'll yeah. fund. That's about it. Um, and then the child, uh, the, the uh, child welfare bill, which... Um, has had very mixed results. I would say generally First Nations are happy about it, but they aren't happy that they haven't had any funding attached to it because the provinces still grip with their cold, dead hand uh, every penny in Indigenous child welfare. And so they refuse to give it up. So there's no new money there. So every single time they... So First Nations have control over your child welfare, but they don't have any funding for it. So that means that it's like the same broken model uh, that First Nations are now delivering. And, and that's the problem here is that most of the things the Liberals have provided over their time in office have been uh, pretty, pretty status quo, pretty much continuing the same thing the Conservatives were doing and so on. And um, not much has changed for the everyday life of an Indigenous person in this country, except for maybe the Métis. The Métis are quite pleased that the Liberals are in office because uh, the Liberals are the very first people to recognize them as a nation, to compensate them for historical wrongs. And frankly, you know, the the Métis are very pleased for the Liberals to continue into office. And we see that with, uh, you know, David Chartrand being one of the most 
indigenous friendly leaders in the country uh, alongside other first nations leaders who are in manitoba here probably some of the most friendly liberal leaders people like arlen dumas and and people like uh, um, you know Cindy Woodhouse, who's the AFN Manitoba Regional Chief. People like Garrison Seti. You know they even posed for a selfie on Friday with him. Uh, the fact is that you know First Nations leaders and Indigenous leaders here in Manitoba tend to be more liberal leaning because they are getting a great deal of uh, uh, regional support for their initiatives. Well, and um, keep in mind for all the listeners or viewers that Negan's been writing about these things too in the Winnipeg Free Press. So in addition to being in, uh, you know, on the TV commentary, you can actually read his articles where he, you know, he just wrote an article about this. Um, okay, so let me ask you, of, of the three parties, um, are there things that you like from the liberals, conservatives, and NDP, like anything specific that you think is, is good. Oh yeah. Like, like uh, I, I, I've already said before that mm-hmm. this conservative party is the most engaged in indigenous issues in history. Uh, like I've said before, this is the most progressive conservative leader in history in Aaron O'Toole. Um, he still says radically inappropriate incorrect, factually wrong, and borderline racist things. Like he says that uh, residential schools were positive. Uh, He says things like um, uh, Indigenous peoples are nothing but, you know, problem creators or, or borderline terrorists, you know, like, like, so there are like major problems with Aaron O'Toole that are the same old conservative politics of the past. But there is some movement, I think, in the conservative party to certainly try to move towards the center, try to move towards the ways in which uh, everyday Canadians might consider them as an option. And frankly, you just didn't see that under Andrew Scheer or Stephen Harper, where they were very quite satisfied to try to, you know, live off that bedrock of Canadian support that hates uh, people from other nations of the world and their head, their headwear and their culture and their religion and frankly, Indigenous peoples as well. And so they're, the, you know, the Conservative Party is, uh, is just interesting. It's interesting to watch right now um, and to see some of the movement. Um, I certainly don't want a Conservative Party that continues to hate uh, and, you know, call Indigenous peoples terrorists and try to pass legislation that continues Jason Kenney's legacy, which is that anytime you stand in front of any, uh, do your legally obtained right to uh, stand in front of development on your territories, that somehow you'll be arrested without any court injunction or any, you know, any involvement of Canadians. You know, the fact is that there, there is a great deal of racism within that party that it's very hard to see the good things. And they have passed some good things in their policy platform, saying namely that they're going to recognize Indigenous rights, but like completely undermined when it comes to passing other parts of their policy. The NDP, of course, it's like trying to talk about the party that you know will never form government. And so they can offer everything under the sun. They can make like... They can say, oh, we're going to hand back all the stolen land. Well, like, uh, until you're in office, I don't know what that's going to look like. So you can promise everything under the sun all day. And the NDP does promise really important, beautiful things, like saying things like we're going to cure child poverty. Uh, We're going to make restorative justice one of the plans of dealing with federal prisons so we don't have continually send Indigenous young people to prison. Like, so the NDP promises big. Uh, but they can do so because you're never going to form government. So, so uh, of course, the Liberals. The Liberals have a track record that where there are some good 
things, some good elements within it. Um, but of course, the liberals, I think, are not to be trusted uh, when they are on their own. How do we know that? Uh, well, when liberals were on their office the first time around, uh, they bought a pipeline. They passed, uh, uh, they, you know, put forward a murder missing Indigenous women and girls inquiry, but then failed to really listen and carry through on many of the implementation of that calls from that inquiry. Never mind the fact that that inquiry really didn't go forward without the, with the, the support. It didn't go forward with the support of families and Indigenous peoples who are most affected by the issue. So, you know, the fact is that Liberals on their own don't do well for our communities. They do much better when they have the NDP in their ear and they need the NDP support. So I think this parliament, this minority parliament, is quite successful for Indigenous people, much so than I think a Liberal majority will look like. Okay, so... You know, that being said, here's some of the pros of, of each of them, uh, one of which won't form a party or won't form the government. What about what's some of the worst parts of the platforms? Is there anything that you've looked at that you thought, you know, this is I mean, you've kind of talked about the conservative, you know, anti-protester uh, rhetoric and so-called securing Canada's infrastructure, I guess. But are there any other things from any three of those parties that are uh, an actual concern? Yeah, I mean, the Conservatives have the same, like, the, you can almost write this and you, I could have predicted this before you saw, like the Conservative platform is all about resource development. And it's all about encouraging First Nations. So they have six pages in their 140 page policy document about First Nations, Indigenous peoples. And of course, the Métis, um, not mentioned at all, not engaged with, not interested with, because I think in many conservative circles, the Métis aren't an Indigenous government, aren't legitimate. And so the Métis just aren't part of that conversation. But so the for the Métis, or sorry, for, for the Conservative Party, uh, the Conservative Party is really just interested in Indigenous lands and resources, period. That's it. But like then there's like these weird parts of their platform where they say, uh, we want to support indigenous land-based learning for addictions programs. Like, do we realize that you can't have land-based programs for addictions if there's no land? <laughs> like, like, it doesn't make any sense. So like, okay, if you're gonna be like, okay, hey, First Nation, yeah. uh, we want you to make this pipeline or mine or hydro project on your territory, but we also want you to have this addictions program that's land-based. Oh, you have no land left? Oh, darn it. Oh, well, what's that other promise? Not so important. Yeah, yeah. We, what's more important is you have a job. Oh, you have a job where you can't breathe the air. Oh, well, <laughs> like it's like, like what? Or, uh, oh, you now you feel completely terrible about yourself because you have no bears because you can't sing your bear songs because there's no bears left. So now you're going to, uh, you know, cope with that with alcohol. And the, the like, you see the point here? Yeah. Is, there's no point in saying a land-based program to deal with addictions because you're just increasing the addiction with the other parts of your yeah. program or the sense of apathy or the sense of shame or, you know, all those kinds yeah. of things. So conservative is conservative. Uh, pl the policy is just status quo conservatism with a few progressive elements. So it's like, but it makes these progressive elements look really like, like, uh, like sort of Jekyll and Hyde. Like it's like this weird, 
Like why? Like you're over here, but then like you know that you, if you think about it, you can't really offer this and offer this at the same time. Anyways, so uh, one of the worst parts of the NDP, uh, the worst parts of the NDP campaign, I think, is that there's some uh, there's some coziness, I think, with Jagmeet Singh and that same agenda of resource development because they really want to get into Alberta and they know that to get into Alberta, you're going to need to be a pro-resource agenda, which will necessarily always stomp on Indigenous rights. So there's this kind of complicated relationship, I think, that the NDP has with their own caucus, because they have very strong Indigenous peoples within their caucus, people like Leah Gazan, um, you know, who have said that we are a party that uh, will bring Indigenous rights into the forefront and make sure that it's involved in consultation. Well, unfortunately, uh, you won't get power in Alberta if you say that Indigenous rights will be part of your agenda, unless there's some massive change in attitude in Alberta, which isn't coming probably in our lifetime. And so, or maybe with the environment, maybe with the issues around the environment, that may be the wedge issue where the NDP have a, 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 a real foot put forward. Because, you know, Anna Mae Paul and the Green Party, which is the first time we're talking about, isn't it interesting that we, you know, the environment should yeah. be the most important issue of this election and the Green Party can't leave Toronto. Like they're still yeah. stuck in this civil war in their own party in Toronto. The Green Party, may we may be watching the Green Party marching itself into oblivion. You know, all that work that Elizabeth May did and whatever you feel about Elizabeth May, good, bad, great, ugly. The fact is that the Green Party is marching into oblivion right now mm -hmm. and self-imposed, you know, just watching. And it really has to do with Toronto Greens and then rural Greens. And the fact is that many rural Greens are quite conservative and that, uh, urban Toronto Greens tend to be very progressive. And when it comes to the environment, you can bridge both those communities. But when it comes to Israel, you cannot. And so so it's this weird kind of thing that the Green Party is going through of they don't really inhabit a political space on this, the traditional mm. spectrum. So like, what do you do there? And so that's where the Green Party is. But unfortunately, who loses out is the environment. The environment is really the lost uh, part of the conversation in this election. No one's talking about it. No one's talking about the carbon tax. I don't even think anybody said the carbon tax yeah. in the first week of the election campaign. That is probably the biggest loss to all Canadians. And who is winning in that regard? Well, it's the Liberals, because the Liberals want people to talk about the environment less because they want to be able to say that they are the leaders on the environment, that they're the ones putting forward the carbon tax. They really don't want to touch the carbon tax because that means they'll lose the support in the prairies particularly, um, because people then will have to pay three more pennies at the uh, per liter at the, at the uh, gas station. So they know that they don't want the environment to be the issue, even though it should be one of the major issues. Because frankly, you know, I, I'm in Manitoba. I watch the world burning every day in the north uh, in the north wildfires uh, we've experienced a massive drought this year uh, an incredible destruction of our environment and the water is the lowest in history and then on top of this it's very likely that we're going to be experiencing uh, big food shortages because of the issues around the um, the drought that's happened and the fact that the earth is scorched and therefore uh, you know in for farmers who are trying to grow grain it's going to be very difficult and hard uh, when fire and wildfires or, or the issue of a burning is how you re reproduce the earth, but it's already burnt. So, you know, all of that said, we're, you know, we're going to see the English language and the French language debate on September 8th and 9th. How, how important do you think that the, the, these debates are? Do you think that 
you know, you can win or lose based on a debate or is it more the platform? Well, this debate will be interesting because you'll, for the very first time in history, you'll see an APTN, uh, uh, I think, I believe it's Todd Labyrinth, I think, uh, who, who will be, uh, do you know who it is? Uh, isn't it Melissa? Oh, is it Melissa? Okay. I, 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 didn't, Melissa. Know who, I didn't know who it is, but um, if it's Melissa, uh, if it's Todd, if it's whoever it is. Yeah, I'm not APTN. sure, but APTN. Um, so APTN has a role in this federal debate. And that's interesting. I mean, that's a real step for the APTN because the goal of APTN was always to become the other national broadcaster yeah. like CBC, CTV, Global, uh, and now APTN. And really, I think this is the very first time in history you'll see APTN as taking that spot uh, as the, uh, you know, on the, with playing with the, the other big kids in the field mm -hmm. you know, sort of thing. Anyways. So, so that's good for them. Uh, but it, debates are really there for the decided yeah, 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 yeah. Debates are not for the undecided. Uh, if you are an undecided and you're watching a debate, you're not making a decision during the debate. What you're doing is is you you tend to watch those who are decided around you decide whether they're going to for sure vote for their person or not. Because we don't tend to vote for, we tend to vote against, right? right. And so, like, so people are like watching Justin Trudeau, and they already hate Justin Trudeau. And so if you are an undecided person sitting with a decided person about Justin Trudeau, you're trying to figure out like how much do they hate Justin Trudeau? And so, and so you're like, you're watching to see how they, how he screws up and you're watching, yeah. what is he saying that makes you push to like him less? And therefore then you're going to vote for uh, Aaron O'Toole because you like Justin Trudeau less. That's the thing about debates. People don't often understand. And, you know, when you're um, when you look at the polling of, debates when people go in and out decideds only uh, undecided sorry undecideds only decide on who they're going to vote for by the mistakes that leaders make not by the things they happily promise uh, i would like to think that people um you know people vote on their uh the positive side but they don't uh th that happens actually during policy announcements so when people say i'm going to invest in childcare. Uh, so you'll get more votes from that for your party than you would during a debate when you tend to get votes if you didn't screw up. So the uh, that's what most most oftentimes debates are. You know, debates are there to kind of solidify the support of people who are already supporting you and to make sure you don't make a major faux pas, that you keep your party platform, you attack instead of react uh, during those debates more than anything else. Okay, so, you know, let's move away from debates and really talk about the Indigenous vote. So when Trudeau got in the first time, it was actually, as you talked about in the media, a historic number of Indigenous peoples voted, many who were voting for the first time, and there was a huge amount of support for Trudeau. Second time around, there was less Indigenous voters, and, you know, you've got Trudeau with a minority government. This time around, how involved do you think Indigenous peoples will be? Do we think that it'll still be a, a lower number than it was during that historic vote? Do you think that there's more interest now that more Indigenous peoples will vote? Or does summer impact all of this? Uh, the the main difference between the 2015 and 29 vote, 2019 vote was the boogeyman of Stephen Harper. Mm -hmm. uh, so people were not voting for Trudeau for the most yeah. part. 
like, yeah. like, like I think about some people that I know and here in Manitoba who are just staunch liberal supporters, have always been liberal supporters, have always voted liberal. These are our First Nations, Inuit people, Indigenous people, Métis people. So, I mean, they're going to support them no matter what. And those are people also, by the way, who I think sometimes um, are very happy with the status quo that Canadian politics offer to them. And good, bad, great, ugly, those are people in major power positions within Manitoba. Um, so, um, you know, I'm not here to criticize them, but I would say that problem ultimately is there's no party that supports Indigenous peoples, that will support Indigenous rights, that will hand the land back. So let's just, you know, the the fact is that the reason why people voted less in 2019 Uh, is a mixture of apathy surrounding the Liberals. They couldn't maintain the support that they got in 2015. And there was no evil boogeyman Stephen Harper to inspire people to go out and vote because people, things had gotten so bad. We had never had a a leadership meeting, for example, uh, that involved Indigenous leaders and the Prime Minister. Uh, We had never had anything other than very aggressive resource agendas and then a stupid education act that was a point waste of time uh, that the uh, uh, was called First Nations Control of First Nations Education Act or something that the liberal that the Harper conservatives were trying to impose upon, uh, you know, just a sham, terrible act. Um, The so the, the 2019 election really was evidence that the liberals were failing. And so not much has changed. The Liberals still haven't cured the issue of boil water advisories, uh, although they have fixed it on approximately two-thirds of the ones that started when Stephen Harper was in office. Uh, By the way, the reason why we have boil water advisories is because of the Liberals, because of Paul Martin, and because of Paul Martin's cutting of funding or capping of funding on First Nations infrastructure to the 2% cap, going all the way back to the 90s and the Cree-Chen government. So, like, I reiterate what I said before, which is that no Canadian political party is really invested and interested or engaged on the issues of Indigenous communities and First Nations, particularly poverty. And so, you know, like, that's just a baseline. So we know that there is no party that will serve our interests, and no party represents Indigenous peoples. Uh, There are First Nations or Inuit or Métis people who get elected to office, but they're elected by Canadians. And so therefore, they're going to serve Canadian interests and maybe the occasional Indigenous interest. But they can't get that forward in a party where Canadians are the dominant conversation. Canadians are who's going to elect them and reelect them. And the fact is, and this is not a uh, this is not a glass half full way of seeing it. This is the ultimate truth. It's not pessimistic. This is that that no Canadian political party is invested in Indigenous people. They're like they're going to be invested in Canadians, which means that Canadians continue occupation on Indigenous territories, Canadians use of in, Indigenous resources, uh, Canada's status quo politics when it comes to keeping the situation of poverty, the situation of control, the fact that the Crown claims the land, even if it's illegal, Canadians still have that as their vested, you know, center core of who they are as a, as a being. So, so that's not really a glass half full way of seeing it. It's mm-hmm. just that, that that's what Canadian politics involves. And the sooner that we can recognize that, then we can say, okay, if we're going to operate in this system, um, what I often say is it's never a question of, of who to vote for, for Indigenous peoples. Mm-hmm. It's who to vote at all. Because when you wrote this for McLean's, also, you know, people like Rusty Abo has also, I've also said this, you know, do you vote for your oppressor? 
And when you accept the system that oppresses you by participating in voting for it, then are you ultimately the uh, architect of your own demise, meaning the architect of your own control? It's like, can you imagine if we all got to vote for the Indian agents in our communities? The fact that, we, like, the idea would be, yes, we get a say in who oppresses us, but we are still in a system of oppression. Right. So, so that's the problem here, is that that's what Canadian politics offers to Indigenous peoples. And while some Indigenous peoples, and I don't want to insult them, um, some Indigenous leaders, a lot of them here in Manitoba, they see that as, well, I, I want to get as much done as possible as I can. And I have to acknowledge, of course, my father is probably in that boat. Actually, I can tell you that my father is in that boat, not because he wants oppression, but no. because my father thinks we need to get some work done. We need to get some uh, some movement. We need to. We can't just pretend like the colonizer or the oppression is uh, going away, and we're going to somehow operate. We need to get as much done as possible, save as many lives as possible. We want to make sure that people get fed, and then maybe at the same time we can resist and fight and eventually yeah. overcome the system. It's like the long game approach. We're going to get yeah. some work done today and eventually we'll be able to overthrow the system. I think that may at times be an optimistic picture because I think the system does very effective work in ensuring that the system continues. No matter how many times we participate, we could be like, our grandchildren will overthrow the system, but that's putting a lot on our grandchildren. And yeah. second is it's really believing that the system will somehow weaken over time when it in fact strengthens. Yeah. And you know, um, it, it's a hard place for all of us to be. How, how are we, what's the right way to manage the genocide machine that is Canada and the political system and the status quo that's literally ironclad. We, we don't have an army behind us to even engage in that sense. And I've heard some native people refer to voting not so much um, in in the positive way that you know some people think about it, but more in terms of harm reduction. So none of these parties are going to do it for me. But who would be the the worst case scenario that would just make our job ten times harder trying to resist? And so, uh, you know, with that kind of harm reduction mentality, uh, a lot of Native people vote against uh, you know uh, Harper, for example, or will vote against Aaron O'Toole because they know what that package brings with them, not necessarily that oh Trudeau's perfect or uh, Jagmeet Singh is perfect, but it's like harm reduction. Who will do the least amount of harm that gives us at least a little breathing room to continue to advocate? I'll tell you the one thing that I don't appreciate and that I don't ever support. I don't support our people calling other people who decide to vote sellouts. Yeah. Me neither. I, and, and, and I think I see that far too much on Twitter. Yeah. The, uh, the Twitter crew who decide that their way is the only way. Exactly. The fact is that is the most colonized way to operate. The most colonized way to operate is to say, oh, our communities can't make decisions. Like what is what does colonization say? Our communities can't make decisions. Indigenous peoples are too weak and deficient. And ultimately that we are, uh, that we can't make decisions for ourselves, that we need to be yeah. controlled. Well, that is exactly what people are doing on Twitter when they say this Indigenous person who has made this decision to work with the government uh, is a sellout, is can't make a yeah. decision for themselves. And ultimately we need to eradicate them from our community. I think that's very privileged. I also yeah. think that's a big extreme position that says that 
that completely neglects the fact that many people on Twitter, the reason why you're able to speak on Twitter is because of the work of those people mm -hmm. who worked with the system over time to make sure that you could get an education, that make sure that you could have uh, some treaty rights that to get to the position in which you are today. It's very thankless. And it also, I don't think it's very respectful to what our traditions ultimately talk about, which is that we need to work together and we need to work together in such a way that we got to find some way to bridge this. And so now we got to find a way in which like, like people like to say, oh, well, there was such a thing as banishment in our communities. Well, banishment didn't mean they didn't operate in the world. Like they still existed. So yeah. like eventually you got to deal with them. So mm -hmm. like the fact is that we can say all day that, you know, this person is a sellout or this person works with the government or I think there are really remarkable indigenous peoples that have made decisions to try to find some power influence, still maintain our values and our integrity yeah. Yeah. in those parties. And that we should be thankful for that. We should be thankful that they've been able to maneuver. And, you know, this is a personal interest because I'm going to talk about my father right now. And, uh, you know, people who decided to enter into the justice system, for example, the most racist system here in Manitoba, and find some way to include Anishinaabe values in those places. And, uh, you know, we should be thankful that they are able to do that because we're able to then have these privileged positions of being a professor today or be a student in a university to study Indigenous justice because now the system is more aware of Indigenous justice. So we should be thankful of that. But I do not in any way appreciate nor accept uh, people who call others sellouts and, uh, you know, want to shame them or mob them or on, yeah. on Twitter. And so I'm not interested in that. I don't think that, I think that's the most colonized game of all is to do that. Yeah. Ultimately all of our people are working, you know, most of our people are working in whatever ways they know how, whatever ways they can with whatever opportunities they have to try to advocate for our people. Some of us are inside, literally working in government. Some are in politics, some are outside, some are on the front lines and we're all coming about it in different ways. But ultimately the main theme seems to be for most, not all. There's obviously some terrible people in, in everyone's society, but, um, for the most part, we're all working towards betterment and we're not all going to agree on what that particular thing is, but it's about supporting where people are making an effort uh, because this there's even a standard amongst, you know, um, others that advocates have to be perfect. You know, activists have to be perfect. Leaders have to be perfect or knock them down. Um, but if we're in, if we're so concentrated in the business of knocking people down, um, we're going to end up with nobody. Because this is colonization. This is genocide. We, you know, we're, we come with all of our troubles and our heartaches and our mistakes and our learning along the way. And if we're just judged for all of it, um, well, we're not going to have any leaders left. So I agree with you. It also doesn't deal with reality. And yeah. the reality is that, you know, like what I always say is every chief I've ever met gets into being in that position often, you know, actually hundred percent of the time I've ever experienced for good reasons to advocate for their community, but it's the system, it's human resources. Most often mm -hmm. they don't have yeah. time or energy to be able to support yeah. all the needs of their community because the Indian act chronically underfunds us. And don't get me wrong. I would like people like our most competent uh, values to be in government. Um, but that may not always be the space in which our most competent leaders should be. Yeah. 
Uh, it may be that we need as many people outside the hallway as yeah. inside the hallway. Or, you know, uh, Perry Belgard. you know, many people want to say Perry Belgard has abandoned certain values when he led the Assembly of First Nations. But the fact is that he's still there or he was still there till recently till uh, Roseanne Archibald is. And, but like, like that doesn't mean we don't criticize. Right. It doesn't mean that we don't interrogate. Right. It doesn't mean that we don't demand accountability. Yes. That's not what I'm saying in any way. I'm saying yeah. all of that should continue, but I'm, but you know, uh, the idea yeah. of banishment or the idea of uh, calling somebody a sellout and, you know, putting them to the side, just pretending they don't exist. Like that's just not the way in which yeah. our teachings operate. Like yeah. we, we do have ways in which we reconcile. We, we, um, we have restorative justice when we have uh, conflicts in our community and coming together is far more important and far more about what we're about than it is separating. Okay. Well, Negon, before we wrap up, the most important question of the day is what should be the priority for these three political parties on the Indigenous front? What are the most critical issues that they should be activating, you know, advocating on? And what kind of commitments uh, would should we have? Uh, well, right now, of course, the emergency situations, as always, are the most important issues. So most important issues of the issues of poverty, the issues of uh, boil water advisories, the issues of... Um, uh, suicide epidemics in our communities. Um, and the issue on the urban front, uh, the issues of an ongoing um, situation of food deserts, I think is an issue in downtown course. The fact that you can't get fresh food. So because you can't get fresh food, diabetes skyrockets in our communities. Like when you look at diabetes epidemics in indigenous communities, those aren't random. They're, those are coming directly because of the lack of fresh food. And whether that be in the north, the fact that you, you know, cost you $20 for a banana or, you know, $100 for a case of water, uh, those result in sicknesses. And so, you know, the fact is that we are communities who are not food sovereign and we are not, we are not able to um, gain the amount of, uh, um, uh, fresh food, affordable fresh food within our community. So there's lots of, I think, most important issues are the issues of the environment, which is the most important issue related to Indigenous rights, because we our rights are distinctly tied to the territories in which we live. So we can't just pretend that Indigenous rights don't tie with the environment. Then on top of that, the issues of poverty, those are the same old emergency issues that have been going on for decades that are include mental health, for example. Like we haven't really talked a lot about the unmarked graves that have been uncovered at First Nations, sorry, uh, residential school sites close to First Nations throughout the country. But that all ties to the mental health epidemic in our communities in that we really don't have any Indigenous communities in the country, particularly First Nations, who have adequate mental health supports and mental health supports relate with cultural supports because we know that when people learn the culture that they get a better sense of themselves, better self-awareness in themselves, a better sense of confidence, and then you're able to withstand suicide epidemics. So we know that the issues of mental health relate with cultural revitalization, language revitalization, and so on. So, I mean, all of those issues are of critical importance. 
Uh, and then lastly, of the situations that I discussed about in urban uh, situations, and that may tie with Métis Nation. It also ties with Indigenous peoples who live in cities and the issue of poverty. So, I mean, homelessness. Um, I work with the Mama Bear Clan, which I'm wearing my their logo today. Um, the Mama Bear Clan, of course, which we are a poverty reduction organization, trying our best to save people on the streets, to never leave anyone behind, you know, and to try to recognize that, you know, we don't always agree, but we leave, we don't leave anyone behind. We don't leave them hungry. We, we work with all of our peoples in whatever stage that they are at, uh, good, bad, great, ugly, and, you know, some of our uh, men, for example, I think one of the issues that is one of the most challenging in our communities is what do we do with many of these Indigenous men who come out of jail? And how do we begin to encapsulate and reconcile many of our uh, brothers and uncles who are very complicated and, uh, you know, need a, a great measure of support because uh, we can pretend like they don't exist. Mm -hmm. But the fact is that if we drive by in downtown Winnipeg, you're going to see tent cities and most of those places are inhabited by men. And there are women in those sites as well. Many of them are pregnant too, by the way, by those men. And so how do we then figure out a way in which we can bring those communities, those things that are happening anyways, and be able to work with one another in a kind and generous and Indigenous-led way? Because uh, the fact is that we can, we can wait for governments to help us, but they will never. They will, they're not invested in, uh, in us other than to create jails and programs that will uh, fund more bureaucrats than it will be people that they can help. The fact is that we have to lead in our own way using our own resources, not wait for government support. And that's what the Mama Bear Clan and other organizations here in Winnipeg are trying to do, is that we're not waiting for government grants we're just going to go out and we're going to do it. We're going to take the uh, small little pots of money that we have to make sandwiches, to make soup, to get our clothing in our communities together and get donations and take them out to our relatives in the community and do the best that we can to be able to make sure that, that there's safe places for them to, to live, to eat, and sometimes to cope. I mean, you know, our job sometimes isn't to tell somebody to stop using but to give them a better option, you know, because when we say we love you, here's a smudge, here's a safe place that we're going to try to provide for you, that will offer more opportunity to see a life outside of using than telling somebody not to use every day. Is there um, online links that I can share through my podcast and YouTube where people can make donations to Mama Bear Clan, for example? Yeah, so the North Point Douglas Women's Centre, which is a women-led organization, uh, and of course the Mama Bear Clan, also women-led, it's because it's an initiative through the North Point Douglas Women's Centre. So you can go the NPW, sorry, npdwc.ca, and they're, uh, they're the uh, North Point Douglas Women's Centre. We're right now fundraising, I believe, for a new building, uh, some other expansion of initiatives. Uh, just wonderful organization. They're not the only organization. There's really another one. Nadinaway is a wonderful one in the downtown area. You can check them out. Uh, also, uh, Gani Ganichik, which does wonderful work with youth coming out of the child welfare system. Uh, just I work with all of them in different ways and uh, mm -hmm. really great people, uh, wonderful people who dedicate their whole lives to never leaving any of our people behind. 
Well, that's great. I'll make sure and collect all those links and put them in the podcast and YouTube descriptions so that people can, because oftentimes the first question after hearing a podcast that's really touched someone, they will say, what can I do to help? Can I make a donation? Can I, you know, I participate. So I'll make sure to post those links and, you know, thanks for all you do, uh, Negan, not just, I, you know, at your place of employment and your job, but all the public education that you do through things like coming on my little podcast, uh, going on media, writing articles, engaging in, um, you know, public speaking, like you're, you're just so fully engaged in public education so that people know better and can do better. And the thing is, is that you approach it in a way that you inspire people to want to help, to want to take action, to want to stand with us when we make change and, and advocate for our collective future. So I really appreciate that you do that. And, and even the one-on-one -on -one support you show me and so many other people. <laughs> I I probably get more reaction from being on your podcast than I do in my own columns because we have a firewall and people don't want to pay the 27 cents to read the column. So, <laughs> so um, it's not a little podcast. I'm really honored that you include me on these conversations. And, um, uh, you know, if I can make a just a tiny little plug, there's uh, I'm on CBC Power and Politics every Friday at 430. Yep. 4.30 Manitoba time. I think that's 3.30 Alberta time or Vancouver, and then 5.30 Ontario. If I guess, if I'm doing my math right there. <laughs> yeah. So uh, we're on every Friday, and I'm on the power panel with uh, Marty Patrigan, uh, Paul Wells, uh, and then a few others, uh, Katie sometimes, Emily sometimes. Uh, you know, anyways, so just a wonderful crew. They are remarkable people. And if you get a chance to to hear, you know, you if you ever think to yourself, like non-Indigenous peoples don't know a lot about Indigenous issues, and you're like, watch Friday. Uh, Paul and Marty and Katie and Emily, particularly, who lives out in Quebec. Uh, she's uh, African-Canadian. I think, she, I believe she's from Haiti originally. Um, you know, just remarkable remarkable knowledge on indigenous issues. Like I learn something every time I go on there because I get to hang out with people who have really thought about these issues and really thought about the issue for a lot longer in the media than I have. I've only been in the media for a few years. So just really great people and uh, you know, get a chance to come and watch uh, some really cool debate. And there's also other great indigenous correspondents that are on power and politics and also wonderful other people in the media, you mm -hmm. know, Tanya Talega, who is, you know, just signed a book deal, I understand. And, and uh, just so many other great people who are throughout the country doing really great things, uh, you know, Connie Walker and so on. And just to check them out, wonderful mm -hmm. people in the media, lots of really great Indigenous peoples in the media. So miigwech to you for including me. And, uh, you know, I get up on a Sunday morning to do this. So <laughs> yeah. I want you to know that's how dedicated I am to our friendship. I know. Well, I'm glad, even though it's summer and Sunday, I really appreciate it. And thank you to all the Warrior Life podcast listeners for always tuning in, sharing, posting, resharing, using these podcasts in your classrooms or in your discussions. And don't forget to follow Negan on Twitter and uh, read his articles on the Winnipeg Free Press. Join him on Friday because I'm going to watch on Friday. Um, and for any of my content, you can just get it all on my website, pampometer.com. Easy, all in one place. Till next time, keep living a warrior life. Malalia. Well,